Whether you want to travel more or communicate better with international clients, you need to try Babbel. I've used Babbel's courses and you can do the same in order to learn real life conversation skills in a different language, order food, ask for directions, or speak to clients without having to use translation apps. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash freelance. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash freelance, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash freelance. Rules and restrictions apply. I'm Brandon Hull, and you're listening to Freelance to Founder. I think in the beginning of my freelance journey, it was all about, okay, make money to pay rent. And now it's like, I'm okay, we're good. We don't have to worry about paying rent anymore, but let's worry about hitting some other financial goals or changing the pricing model. So in the beginning, it used to be find as many clients as possible, as fast as possible. So I think the client number went really high and then went really low and then really high. And I don't think it's necessarily about the number of clients. It's more about the quality of the jobs and the type of work that I'm doing. Once again, this is Freelance the Founder, a podcast where I talk to men and women like today's guest, Emily Mills. They're service providers, marketing agency owners, online course builders, authors, bloggers, product creators, software developers, and sometimes even other podcasters. But we don't just talk how-tos. I introduce you to my guests in a way where you genuinely get to know them, why they're now doing what they're doing today, how they pivoted and how they scale things beyond themselves. And if you hang on to the end of the episode, you'll hear our three-for-one segment. Three questions seeking one principle, one habit, and one person that our guests have clinged to through the years. I love today's episode because it features the quintessential freelance to founder story. A very young female discovers a talent for art. She loves it. She loves telling stories with her illustrations, but she begins to lose hope whether she can really make it as a career graphic designer in an unfulfilling job until the heavens open, literally, and she hearkens to the call. This is the story of Emily Mills. You can find her at emilyamills.com. She's the author of The Art of Visual Note-Taking, founder of the Sketchnote Academy, and one-time visual artist for Dave Ramsey. And she's recently hired her first full-time employee, her husband, The business now fully supports both of them. In this episode, you'll get to know Emily's backstory, how her college career provided glimpses at what was to come, how and why she hit a wall early in her career, and how she pulls in revenue today. You'll pick up on the traits, habits, and mindsets a founder needs to have to scale beyond a freelancer. I loved our conversation, and I'm happy to bring you this episode with Emily Mills. Emily Mills, thank you so much for joining me on Freelance to Founder. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Brandon. So I'm I'm excited to tell the audience. I actually will have just told them this, but I feel like your story is the quintessential story. It is the pure embodiment of our show's title and the spirit of our show, Freelance to Founder. You were a freelancer. You had a full-time gig. That freelance pursuit took on a life of its own. You had a little literally inspiration from another source and it's led to you doing your own thing as a founder with a with an interesting first employee right out of the gates as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot we could talk about today. Um, you are uh, you are known as Emily Mills at emilymills.com. That's right. You are also founder of Sketchnote Academy. Um, you're the author of The Art of Visual Note-Taking. There's so many 
pieces of the puzzle here that we can start with. What can you tell us all about the state of the business today of all of these variety of pursuits? Where are you at today and how does it compare to your last, uh, your most recent time as a, uh, as a full-time employee? Uh, well, today I have um, a free course. I have a paid course um, and I'm continuing to build uh, paid courses. Um, I didn't really, I had one paid course last year, so that was a little bit of a difference. This year I have someone in my business. Last year, I did not. Um, This year, I have a business manager. Last year, I did not. Um, So while a lot of things seem the same, like I'm taking on about the same amount of work and charging maybe just a little bit more than last year, a lot has changed under the surface and on the foundations of the business rather than in what people see publicly. Yeah. So your husband just joined you recently as employee number one, correct? That's right. So my husband, Joseph, just joined four weeks ago, five weeks ago. Congratulations. That's got to be a momentous uh, occasion for you guys to to put on the calendar to, to celebrate in the years to come. It's a unique kind of anniversary to celebrate. Yes, we're excited about it. And it's it feels like it's been a long time coming. And, you know, everyone always ask you, oh, how's it going? Like, it's almost like they expect you to fail or fight or get divorced within like two weeks. (laughs) But uh, it's been really good. And actually, since Joseph has joined the business, I feel like we're getting really healthy in a lot of areas. So we're both excited about the future. That's cool. That'll be fun to talk about here as the the show goes by. When did you cut the string on full-time employment and and dive full on into your world of sketchnoting of of artistry. When did, when did that happen for you? Uh, April 2016 was when I first went out on my own. But that's after having done it for a number of years on the side, right? So I started. I think my first freelance job, you know, just like a little client gig, was in college. I was a junior in college. So ever since I was a junior in college, which was 2008 or nine. Yeah, my understanding is that was the first time you ever got paid for doing true mm-hmm. artistry. I mean, you you first time you ever got paid for your art, for your talent, right? Right. It was very eye-opening. <laughs> so what you're doing today is uh is really cool and I've I've I don't even can't even begin to imagine the talent in doing this, but the sketch note piece alone I find fascinating because you have a particular talent for taking what, let's say, a speaker is discussing in a conference session, a workshop, or something like that, and not just taking notes, but doing it in a way where it's visual, it's very uh, very memorable, and it helps with that retention piece of it. Tell me about that piece as a specific talent, as a specific product offering, as a specific even skill that you teach now in a course. Tell me about that, and then we'll go back in time and talk. You know, we'll, we'll figure out where did this all come from to begin with? But tell me about that skill and that talent and and choosing to use your art in that specific way. How did that come about? Um, it's a little bit of a long story, which I'm sure we'll get into. But basically, I started out doing illustration for a friend's video studio in Houston when I used to live in Texas. And that was kind of eye-opening. Like I had seen whiteboard videos before, but I hadn't actually participated in one. And so that was kind of my first step into the visual note-taking world was a whiteboard video um, so if anyone's not familiar, what I do is called sketch noting or visual note taking. And that is basically I sit in the audience or up on a stage or in the back of the room and I take visual notes in real time. So drawing pictures that go along with the words that people are saying. And like you said, it helps with retention and it's interesting and it's like a visual mural and it's real time. So as soon as the speaker is done, the mural is ready to go. Which is astounding because to to not only have the talent from an art standpoint, from an illustration standpoint, but you also have to have that ability to 
glean what the key message, the core messages of that speaker, their presentation, their workshop, whatever it is, and build around that. But you don't even necessarily know where they're going for right. sure. So you have to allow for certain room for uh, on-the-fly decision-making. You know, you're building a list of things that they have to say, and you're not sure how long that list is going to be right. or what, how visual the elements are going to be, but you're on the hook to deliver a visual piece of it. But um, it's an unbelievable talent, and I sure hope that everybody checks out some of your work and and maybe even looks at whether this is something that they should learn or could learn from you to help uh, them, themselves with note-taking and that sort of thing. But as a business, how did you decide that this would be something that you could build a living around? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So uh, back to the whiteboard video that I had done in Texas, um, I just thought that was a really cool freelance project. And I put it on my dribble.com portfolio and um, a company saw it and they're like, hey, we do this kind of work. Do you want to work for us? And it felt like a no-brainer answer. It's like, do I want to draw and get paid for it? Yes, I would like that. <laughs> and so that happened right around when I was moving to Nashville. I was actually the first hire for the company outside of their state. So they were they had plans to build this remote network of all these employees or um, contractors across the US and they just hadn't launched it yet, but I was the first one. And so there was maybe six months, three, three to six months of where they were figuring it out. I was kind of like, ready to work for him, but hadn't been trained. So in that few month time period, I took um, a workshop from Mike Rohde, who wrote a book called the Sketchnote Handbook and the Sketchnote Workbook. And I learned from him. And then I just dove headfirst into it because I knew that's the same kind of work that I would be doing for the company is visual note taking at live events. So um, I just sketch noted every time I went to church, every time I went to creative mornings or a lecture, um, work meetings, and it just became a personal practice of this is how I learn. This is how I take notes now. And I didn't have a lot of confidence in my ability at the at the beginning. Um, if you ever look at my first sketch note, it's pretty atrocious. You can't even read the handwriting. But after four or five years of practice, then um, I think I got a lot better. And I, I would hope so since I got asked to write a book about it. So, um, yeah, that hobby kind of became a paying gig. It, tr- it took on a life of its own. Sure did. Talk to me a little bit about the, there's the visual element and then there's the concept, conceptual element, right? There's the understanding concepts and thinking about how they should be visualized, which does t- take a certain amount of uh, artistry as far as your, your vision and so forth. But it also takes a certain structure in your, in your mind about how to interpret what somebody is talking about. Again, since you're doing it in real time, right. you're not just doing this in a vacuum. Um, talk to me, how did that, what have you learned about how that skill is put to use because that to me is the key to this being a really unique personal to you business versus just general artistry. Not that you can't make good money as an artist, obviously, but this is a, a, a way of taking that art and turning it into something a little bit more structured right. that can turn it into a business in a variety of ways. Yeah. So when I'm listening to, let's just call it a conference keynote. So if I'm listening to that conference keynote, if it's a really good speaker, my job is easy because they know how to paint pictures with their words and I can just draw exactly what they're saying because they've already done a good job of visualizing the ideas that they're talking about with words. All I have to do is capture it. But maybe a speaker who's talking about something really technical or an inexperienced speaker with those kind of situations, I have to use my creativity to kind of draw out those big ideas and visualize them in such a way that someone's going to want to look at this information again. So I can go to a software panel and 
make it look good, but do people actually want to read it again? That's the question. So um, there's something called visual metaphors, and it's basically um, you come up with something to draw that is like the situation that's parallel to what they're talking about that everyone knows, like a pop culture reference or uh, making a representation. Like it's not what they said, but it's showing what they said, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It sure does. And so I, I think as you're talking about, if you're, if you're sketching with a good speaker, you're telling me your job is very easy because they, they paint with, they paint their, uh, paint pictures with their words and so forth. If you're speaking with somebody who's a little bit less sophisticated or a little bit new at public speaking and your work is cut out for you a little bit more, it's funny. The end result may not be too noticeable to us. Oh yeah. And you, you actually <laughs> might be doing that speaker a favor by helping them portray their message in a much more tangible, organized way that was not the way that they presented it so much. Right. And I think that's why it is such a compelling business model because my job is to make other people look good and everyone likes to look good. And so if you go in and you make someone else the winner, of course they're going to love you. And of course they're going to want to hire you back for the next time. So it's really a good setup. (laughs) So your typical, um, I, I let off by talking about uh, the variety of ways that you make money. You've you've written a book on the subject, the art of visual note taking. You have a course that teaches people um, these principles, and and so they can maybe do it for themselves a little bit. Obviously, you've done uh, project work for clients as well. So, is there one that you enjoy the most of these, or one that you've come to to kind of find as your pillar offering, pillar service offering uh, among the all of these different ways that you can make money doing this? Um, I think what I've fallen in love with the past year is teaching people how to draw because everyone is interested in what I do, but not everyone thinks they can do it. And I know that everyone can do it if they just learn how, like, even if you're not an artist, you can make really effective sketch notes or visual notes. It's just a matter of teaching you to get over that drawing hump and drawing really isn't that hard is it's all a matter of teaching yourself like you can do it because most people have told themselves for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I'm not an artist, I can't draw. So it's really fun for me to kind of undo that thinking just in a three-hour workshop. Right. And no doubt you've had people that come into that thinking, not only do I not draw, like I don't even know, I don't understand the first place to start. So you not only have to be good at at the art, art, you have to be good at helping people build brick by brick, how to get there, right? Like line up online. Like how do you, how do you take those first steps? If somebody is feeling like they want to know how to do this, but they don't feel like they have the skills, the confidence, how do you build that in them? You know, that's a, that's a tough one. Yeah. And I think sketchnoting is really natural for me because every, which side of the brain do you think with test I've taken has said you're equally left and right brained. And I think it shows like I'm very analytical and I'm very process oriented and list oriented, but I'm also really creative. So sketchnoting kind of marries the two sides, the logical and the creative. Right. Okay. So I'm looking at an offering for a sketchnote workshop that you have coming up this week, within the next seven days in Nashville. And it's a three hour course. um, And uh, I think it's about 65 bucks, 24 spots, which I'm sure will be sold out. Here's my question. What will somebody learn in a course like that if they're coming in, not even feeling like they're a good artist, and on top of that, you're going to teach them a very specific way to use that. What would a workshop entail? Um, first, I walk through what sketch notes are because it can be confusing for a lot of people. Like 
what is it? Is it pictures? Is it drawing? It's both. How is it both? What is it? What is it not? So it's just a very high level view. Okay, what is this thing? Let's all understand it before we start doing it. And then I try and jump in with exercises as soon as I can. Like I want to keep people drawing on paper, writing on paper. So um, we'll practice handwriting. We'll practice um, drawing letters, like hand lettering. Sometimes people come in with calligraphy experience and they're like really confident with lettering. And then as soon as it comes to drawing, they're like, oh no. So (laughs) um, (laughs) it's kind of like a high level overview of everything. So a high level overview of handwriting and lettering and hierarchy and layout and page design for lack of a better word. Right. And then um, high level overview of drawing and the basics of drawing and the mechanics and how you can build anything out of a few basic shapes and lines. And then we put it all together with a couple exercises. Um, and that's where we start learning how to listen. Okay, well, if someone's on stage and they're talking with their hands, what does that mean? And what do you do if the speaker stops early? What do you do if this happens? It's like throwing out scenarios to people because those are my most frequently asked questions. So the workshop teaches them how to do it. And then it walks through some exercises to get their feet wet. And then it answers all the questions that they probably have and are scared about. And you similarly have a digital course so people can kind of learn at their pace. Um, That is a free course that teaches uh, it's like a beginner's course to art, basically, right? That is yep. a a feeder to um, your larger course uh, called Master Your Visual Library. Uh, sort of. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so clarify uh, that for me. My courses are in progress. It's kind of a long game strategy just because of time constraints. So uh, my Master Your Visual Library course is a course completely dedicated to learning to draw things from memory and um, creating those visual metaphors that I talked about earlier. So that's like a very deep dive on one specific thing. And then the free course drawing for beginners is just to help people get over that hump because that is the main setback a lot of people have or the main constraint that they feel like, oh, I want to learn sketch knitting, but I don't know how to draw. I'm like, okay, free drawing course. Now you know how to draw. Right. Take my course. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so okay. The, the future courses will be focused on specific aspects of sketch noting along with the drawing courses that go along with it. Got it. Okay. So let's pause the present for just a minute. Let's go back in time. If I had to guess, I would uh, suspect that you did not plan to be and let's call you an artist. You're an entrepreneur as well, but uh, you have that blend of artistry and, and uh, entrepreneurialism. That's not what you predicted for yourself, I assume, right? I think it's every kid's dream to do something creative when they're little, <laughs> um, but it doesn't work out that way for many of us. Right. So talk to me about your earliest years. What did you plan for yourself or what did you picture for yourself when you were younger? Uh, well, I read uh, The Far Side by Gary Larson and Calvin and Hobbes by Bill All-time Watterson. Favorites. So yes. I wanted to be a cartoonist when I grew up. I would... my <laughs> parents got the newspaper and I read the cartoon section every day. And I read just about every single cartoon except for like Mary Worth because that was the most boring cartoon in the whole paper. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very serious one. Yes. Yes. And it's just like, I want to do that for my job. But Mm -hmm. you know, as you get older, you realize, oh, right, that's not really attainable or only a very select few people can do this. And so I started thinking a little bit more practically like, okay, well, maybe I'll just be a graphic designer. And i I think I can do art and make a living doing that. When did your uh, brain start to turn in that way where you thought, okay, I got to change my my plans just a little bit? Were you still pretty young, 10, 12 years old, something like that? Yeah, I was older, actually. Um, 
I went to a K through 12 school that didn't have traditional classes like a lot of high schools do. Like we had art one through four and that was it. Like no shop, no ceramics, no drawing. Like it was just an art class and it was only one. So I was a little limited in what I could do at school and I had part-time job after school. So I couldn't exactly take extra classes. And so I knew I wanted to do art. I knew I needed to learn more and do something with it. So I said, I'll just figure it out when I get to college because I just didn't know what I was doing. So I get to college and then that was also the height of the recession. Um, I graduated high school in 2006. The recession hit in 2008, right when I was deciding my major. And I felt like my only options to do art and earn a living were art education or graphic design. And I am not a kid person. So graphic design, it was, (laughs) and it just, it was a good fit because graphic design is also art and business and art and analytical things. So it was a good fit. So you, you learned at a very young age that even at the youngest age, when you discovered that you had this talent to begin with, it didn't even, it didn't even occur to you that you had a talent necessarily. You were just fulfilling an exercise like a third grade or something like that. And you realize, Oh, wait a minute. I, I guess I'm good at this. Yeah. <laughs> but so I'm sure it clicked in your mind at that time that, oh, it, maybe I can. I'm sure you weren't worried about your career in, in third grade oh, sure. necessarily, but, <laughs> but you, you, it was a spark in you that I enjoy doing this. And not only do I enjoy doing it, like many kids enjoy doing creative things, but I'm good at it too. Like right. I'm, I have a talent for doing this as well. And did that, was that something that was instilled in you from parents? Uh, where did that come from that you would be, so creative like that? Was that just uh, something in your DNA or where did it come from? Um, My parents are both pretty funny people and my dad's very analytical and my mom is very creative and like people oriented. So I feel like I'm a good mix of both of them. And they encouraged me to do what I was passionate about. Like most millennials parents, it's like, go chase your dreams and (laughs) go be that astronaut or fighter pilot. And you know, they were also reasonable too, but um, they encouraged my creativity. I remember my mom taking me to art lessons outside of school when I was able to do it when I was younger. And they never told me to stop doing something because of something they wanted me to. So I appreciate having that support system. But then I mentioned I went to a smaller school. My class size was 55 people and I knew almost all of them since fourth grade. Wow. So when you have a small class size like that, you have to find your identity. So there's right. the sports yep. kids and the smart kids and the rebel kids. And I didn't really fit in with anybody. So I was just the art kid. And there were only like two or three of us in the whole grade. And so I felt like art was very central to my identity in school. Yeah. So despite all of that, you get to college, you start taking some graphic design classes, things like that, among other classes, and you stopped doing any kind of, uh, whether it's cartoon work, artistry, or anything like that, illustration-related work, right? Um, Mostly. So I was actually a cartoonist for the school paper in high school and college, but that was really the only drawing that I was doing was the cartoon, and it was paid work. And I think if I wasn't getting paid for something, I just didn't have time for it. (laughs) I was very motivated to have a job and graduate and be self-sufficient because of the recession. I would see the grades before me graduate and not get jobs and have to move in with their parents. And that was not something that I wanted to do. Like I didn't want to live in my parents' basement and be a stereotype of my generation. So I was very motivated to work really hard, find a good job. And I just didn't make time for a lot of fun art things like I used to. 
Got it. So you sort of recalibrated based on your right. view of can I really do this for a living post graduation? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I so felt the- like it, like cartooning was a fun outlet. It wasn't a job in my mind. Like I was getting paid fifty bucks a cartoon, right. but it wasn't a job. That was just side money. <laughs> it's not something you're actually going to do. It's something you might enjoy doing right. as a diversion from whatever you do during the day, right? Right. All right. So you do get a job out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a job doing graphic design. Is that right? That's right. And did that for a number of years. Talk to me about those first uh, first years as a graphic designer. What type of work did you do? And did you did you find that at least helped a little bit to overcome the fact that you you felt like it couldn't be a career and yet you're able to do it as the beginning of a career? How did that go in those first couple of years? Um, it was really exciting to get a graphic design job right out of college because, like I said, it was very difficult to find those jobs. And I had to go out of state. So I moved to Texas two weeks after I graduated for my job. And even if I wasn't the best at it, I was like, hey, at least I got one. And um, <laughs> I remember sitting in my first couple of meetings being like, I'm way in over my head. I have no idea what I'm doing. I was an in-house designer um, at a college at Texas A&M University. And at that university, it's so large that each college within the university puts out its own magazines and e-newsletters and all kinds of things. And that was all my job. Like I am the magazine designer. I am the ad designer. I'm the email designer. I'm the flyer designer. Like it was all me. So it was a lot for a fresh grad to do, but I learned a lot on the job and taught me a lot about working with people. And it gave me a lot of confidence. Like, okay, I can actually do this. Like I got hired. So they think I can do the job. And then I worked for a church and that was very similar. It was an in-house role and I did everything. Like I, there wasn't another designer on staff. It was just me. So it was good for my self-sufficiency and ego to take the credit for everything. But it was also my fault if anything didn't go as well or didn't look as good. Right. So you, what that means to me though, is that that means you were counted on not just to deliver a piece of art, a, a, a design that was going to be used in a bigger endeavor, like a magazine layout, for example, you had to structure that magazine layout. So, which is a different skill. That's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's one thing to be able to design graphics. It's another thing to be able to design a user interface, for example. And it sounds like you had to do both. Um, and maybe though I know you ultimately grew bored with this work, <laughs> working for others, um, maybe there was a blessing in disguise and, and it provided a little bit more wisdom on how to go about the process of structuring your art as well. I don't know. Right. What do you think? I think so. Um, I had a lot of good work experience, but not a lot of good management. Um, I had one good manager when I worked at Texas A&M um, and I had good coworkers, but outside of the, that position, I just didn't have a lot of good bosses, like people who would take an employee and just run with them and grow them and encourage them and Mentors. ask them questions. Yeah. Like I did not have a mentor. I've still never had a mentor. And so that was the driving factor of, okay, I really want this mentor figure. I really want someone to help me do this and be the best person that I can be, the best illustrator and designer. That person doesn't exist, so I have to be that person. And so I just started structuring everything I do. Like, okay, my boss sucks. How can I be a better boss to myself? That's a that's a very positive way of way of looking at it. Is, <laughs> uh, I'm missing this in my life. How can I learn from that so I'm not that <laughs> when yes. the time comes, right? <laughs> All right. So I assume also, I shouldn't make these assumptions, um, but I, I assume also that you were dabbling a little bit on the side um, as a freelancer, not just dealing with the design work and the, I'll call it user interface work, although that you didn't frame it that way. That's not mm-hmm. technically what it was, but 
Um, you're doing that during the day, but you're also starting to uh, moonlight a little bit with your design work. Is that right? That's right. So in, I think it was 2013, um, a writer named John Acuff had started this Facebook group for people who wanted to crush a goal, whatever it was. And so he just challenged the Facebook group just make a goal. And then he paired people up into groups based on region or um, what the goal was. And that Facebook group just kind of took on a life of its own and became my community for about two years. And so I didn't really, I couldn't think of a goal other than paying off debt. And I had a car loan and I had, a I don't know, like thousand dollars of credit card debt. And so my goal became to pay off the debt. And I was like, well, I work at a church. I don't have a lot of extra income. (laughs) So I guess I'm going to do freelancing to pay off this debt faster. So I started um, doing little projects for friends and just letting people know, hey, if you need some extra art stuff, I can help. And I was not charging nearly enough. But at the same time, I didn't have the experience and the know-how. So I was probably charging what was appropriate. But um, but I you're was, building a portfolio at yeah. the same time, and, and you're, a portfolio you're learning yeah, and you're taking little bites out of that debt as well. At yeah, the same time, right? and I paid off the debt, and then I was still in the Facebook group, and they're like, "Cool, as soon as you crush your goal, then pick another one." And I was like, "Well, the freelancing thing worked out nice. Maybe in like ten years, I could be a freelancer. I think, based on my work experiences, I think I would be really good at managing myself and my work. So maybe I'll just work towards that." And ten then years. I. Yeah, that was my 10-year goal. (laughs) I was like, This is 2013, right? Well, in my 23, four-year-old brain, it was, you have to work in an agency and you have to work at an in-house role and you have to work for a corporation and you have to do like all these work experiences before you're even qualified to go freelance. There's stones that you have to step on in the path. They're required to be right. stepped on before you can you can burst through the door or something, I, right? I thought I'd have to be a creative director or an art director and like get some leadership experience and manage people before I could ever step away and do my own thing. So it was always a long-term goal, but I was really excited about chipping away at it and learning how to be a freelancer. You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane effective home workout. That's because Hydro pairs the effectiveness of rowing with the power of technology to connect you with over 5,000 video trainings, classes, and workouts. And get ready to get out from behind your home desk because after a few months of daily rowing with Hydro, your partner's going to want to take you out for a night on the town to show you off. This spring, join the growing rowing community at Hydro. Head over to hydro.com and use code FREELANCE to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com and promo code FREELANCE to save $400. Hydro.com, promo code FREELANCE, or just click the link in our show description. Have you ever noticed that many of the problems people call in with on this show can be solved by hiring someone? Sometimes you need a full-fledged team, other times maybe just a simple assistant or an expert in something you're not great at. Whatever your reason for hiring, we recommend you take a look at LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. As you may know already, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn Jobs makes the process of finding the perfect teammate 
easy and intuitive. Hiring is always easy when you have access to so many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours when using LinkedIn jobs. I've used it myself, and it was so simple. In fact, I've made multiple hires using LinkedIn jobs. And did I mention, by the way, it's free to business owners like me and you. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash freelance. That's linkedin.com slash freelance to post your job for free or click the link in our show description. Terms and conditions apply. All right. So we, we, uh, this is 2013, 2014 in that range. Um, how much time, or I'm, I think it's around that range. How much time did it take before all of that work culminated in your 10 year plan becoming a two year <laughs> or so, um, uh, sort of reality for you? Right. So as I mentioned, like when did you realize, I should say, when did you realize that this is not going to be a 10 year thing? I'm going to be able to do this sooner. Um, I didn't until it happened. So the story there is I was working at the church. It was sort of a dead end position. Like you can only grow so much in an in-house role when there's no growth track. So I was like, okay, I got to get a different job so I can have better opportunities in my future. And that looked like moving to Nashville. That's a long story, but we won't go there. So moved to Nashville. Um, I was working in-house at a startup and I just wanted to immerse myself in a different city, creative community, get my feet wet, get more experience. And then I was freelancing on the side as a startup. And then all of a sudden the work environment was really toxic and unhealthy. And I was sitting in church and at a church artist event and God said, I want you to go freelance. And I was like, uh, I don't have enough clients. I just moved here. I don't have any network. I don't have community. I don't have enough money in my savings account. That's not going to happen. No. And I just kept working away at my startup job and doing freelance on the side. And eventually it just came to a head where my day job was so unbearable that I was in church again. And I just said, okay, God, if you force me out of my job, I will go freelance. And three days later, this awful situation at work happened where they wanted me to resign. And I was like, I'm not resigning. You have to fire me because I want severance. And So I was actually fired from my job because I wanted the severance and I just felt complete peace about it because I basically asked God to force me out of my job and then he did it. (laughs) Like I am not a risk taker. I love planning. I love having the, you know, stepping stones like processes to follow. And that's not what happened with me. And so just the fact that I had any peace at all over transitioning from my job to freelance is a miracle because I I'm not that way. And so it sounds like you had <laughs> a steady amount. I mean, a decent amount of freelance work going on on the side. I mean, you were, you were starting, you paid off debt. You were doing great things with that, that you would not have been able to do if you had not been freelancing, like right. freelancing unlocked a lot of financial opportunities for you. That yes. doesn't mean that you were financially prepared to be self-employed by any right. means. So, right. and I was as not supposed to, <laughs> Um, so many of our guests have, have felt like the timing was right. Um, they're tired of working for someone else, which clearly you were too. Uh, <laughs> they, they have felt like, um, they're, the opportunity is too big with this side thing that they were working on. And you're our first guest who has said, well, yeah, I had those things happening too, but I wasn't ready to make the plunge. I wasn't. Despite <laughs> all of those, I had to be told <laughs> by a power higher than me that it was time to make a change in my life. And right. when you look back on that occurrence, obviously you can see how thing, how the path might have been opened more for you than you realized on your own with your own eyes yes. that it was. Um but talk to me still, you, you were at peace. Talk to me a little bit more about that. How did, how did you reason 
the practical side of you that felt like, no, this is not, this is not, I'm going to be stressed out. This is not going to work out. How did you balance the the practical side of you and the, that internal spiritual side of you yeah. saying, nope, this is what I'm going to do? Um, I honestly don't know if I have a good answer for that. Other than that, I knew I had enough money in the bank to last like another two months, like pay rent, pay bills, all that stuff. And I had a lot of confidence in myself. Like, hey, I've come this far in my career and I've done all these things with clients. Like if I have to get a job, it's not the end of the world. I didn't want to, but I was like, I can get a job. And so I was confident in a fallback plan, but I was also confident that, you know, I'd asked God to force me out and then he did. And so I just felt like, hey, if you're going to give me that, I'm going to trust you with this. Like I haven't been doing a good job of listening and managing my own business on myself. So you opened the door. So how about you show me how to do it? And I just feel like I never have all the answers and I can't always find what I need to be doing. But if I can involve God in my process, then that really helps me refocus like, okay, it's not all about me. And um, I can ask God to help me in business. So I just feel like that piece trumped any logic that I could have had or tried to fight back with. So that's fascinating because you've said elsewhere, and I think this is a really interesting insight for somebody who's not even uh, who's not even religious. Um, but you said elsewhere that you felt like maybe it wasn't this moment, uh, but in general that you felt like you were not a good steward of a talent that you had, of a gift that you had. And in your case, it was it had a sort of a uh, it did have a spiritual weight that came with it. But I think other people may feel that way as well. Who who again who aren't, aren't religious, where they they have this thing in the back of their head that they are talented at. They have a gift for this, and yet it's not their full-time thing. In fact, right. maybe they've buried that talent altogether. It's nothing that they use to change others' lives, to change their own life, that right. sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? What was that? I don't want to dive into the pain of the, <laughs> or the shame you might have felt, but but I do think other people probably do have those moments where they feel like, I am good at this, and man, I can't seem to find a way to turn it into something. Mm -hmm. How did you grapple with that? And was that an important piece of the puzzle? I think so. So deep, it's like deep down in my core, I knew like I have confidence in myself, like I can do this. And I think I'm actually a good designer. And I think like always there's room for improvement, but it's like, you know, I think I'm okay at this. And you know, the drawing thing, I get a lot of compliments on it. So maybe I'm not horrible at it. And it's less about the execution and more about the heart of it. Like there are amazing realistic artists out there, but the goal isn't to be realistic. It's just to have a art that's you. And so like whenever you're scrolling through Instagram, I don't know if other people follow artists on Instagram, but you usually follow an artist because it's theirs, not because it looks real or it looks the best. It's because you like them and you like their expression of it. And so- right. For me, it was all about that tie between, okay, I don't actually feel like I'm the best illustrator, the best designer, but this is my interpretation of it and people like it. And so when the job went away, it was like, okay, so I guess now I have to actually be vulnerable and show people and let them grasp it and be okay with it instead of just shielding it because that's really safe. And so, like you said, it is trying to be a better steward of what you've been given. And it's having that outside higher power say like, hey, you're actually good at this and I'm going <laughs> to orchestrate things in such a way that you 
get the opportunity to show it more than you would ever in a normal job. So that's a scary thing though. It is very vulnerable Uh, (laughs) because it's one thing to offer a product or a service to a target audience and to think of it very coldly like that. Like I can do this. I have a skill for this. I'm going to teach these people to do this, blah, 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 blah. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to, to offer art um, in this sort of way where it could be more quickly and roundly rejected in ways that feel more personal than just a product or service that you feel strongly about. And so I, I, I can sense that that's, that's definitely the case, uh, though I don't make money off of art quite in the same way. Um, I guess my, my question from that, it's just an observation, but my question from, from that is, all of this sounds great, and especially for people who can relate to your feeling like you heard a, you heard a, a voice, an undeniable voice saying, this is where I need to go in life. However, all of that aside, did you hit a wall at some point in time where the, the practical issues or challenges, the rejection or something were a little more than you anticipated? Um, I would say no, actually. So as soon as I left working, um, a friend of mine got me connected with Dave Ramsey's company, which is also based here in Nashville. Right. And they're like, we love you. We love your work. Can you come contract for us? So I contracted for them three days a week. So it was kind of like I had a part-time job again for, you know, a month on a month off and three months here and two months there. But that was actually the harder thing to grapple with is, okay, I have this thing over here that's paying me like a normal job and it's consistent and they love me and they want me to join staff as if I want to, but I don't. And then I've got like two, three, four days a week where I don't have to be at their offices working and I can do my own client projects and I can grow my clientele again and I can explore and try different things. So the hardest thing was actually grappling with letting go of the contract work and just embracing my work instead. So yeah. it's I've it's like I said, I don't take a lot of risk and it's really scary to try new things. So it was really hard to just let go of contract work and consistent work and easy work when it's a lot harder to say, yes, I'm an illustrator, please buy illustrations from me. (laughs) (laughs) Buy my illustrations. What type of work did you do for uh, Dave Ramsey's company? I worked with almost every single business unit. So uh, I did illustrations for every dollar. I did graphic design for entree leadership, personalities, home stuff, like loans. Like I've touched almost every area of the business, but you'd never know it just because it's behind the scenes work. Right. Was it, I, that's what I going to ask, is it illustration, just straight illustration, or was it also a little bit of this getting into this realm of visual note-taking at all? Um, there was one project where they actually contracted me outside of another contract. Um, they had a video series and I created the illustrations that were happening in the background as the speaker was talking on the video screen. So it was sort of like what I do on a stage or with the events, but it was just on a video. So that was kind of cool that they saw the work that I was doing when I wasn't with them. And they said, actually, we want that in here too. Wow. Okay. So time goes by this, uh, this, you cut the the cord, I think in 2016, right? Yep. And I've been freelance ever since. So that's over, uh, as we record this, that's over three years now. Um, do, do, do you see distinct differences in how your business grew during the year 2016 versus 2017 versus 2018 versus 2019 now, yes. <laughs> um, how, ha- how have you had to progress in terms of what you offer the world? You know, I, I led the show again by talking about a book and talking about courses and you do the, the project work and so forth. 
How has that evolved? You know, you you went from the first customers you found. Tell us about the first customers you found, and then walk through how that evolved to uh, your business's services and offerings. Um, I think the first few customers I found were actually most people find me. I've never actually asked for work. I've never had to advertise and say, "Hey, I just left my job. I need help." Well, that must be nice. I know it just it doesn't happen, and so I feel kind of weird saying it, but I've never had to do that yet. And it's not like I'm above it; I just haven't had to. So, um, everyone who I've worked with has found me first, and I think that's just because I love sharing my work. I like putting it on Instagram. I like putting it on Dribble, and if it's interesting and niche, people kind of latch onto it and they tell people about it. So that's one nice thing that I learned about freelances from the start. If you have to narrow down your focus, you're going to be a little bit better known for one thing. And well, so, and we yeah. had Becca Cordes on. Um, some of our newer listeners will not remember this or know this, but we had Becca Cordes on in our second season. Uh, and she is a, uh, she's done calligraphy. She does just incredible hand lettering. And it was the following that she gained after she did some initial project-related work that was very local, um, it was the following that she started to gain through her Instagram account that started to land opportunities and people were coming to her, even wanting her to to go, come to their city and they would help drum up people that would do a workshop locally and things like that. And and it's turned into a thing where she's done a, a world tour even mm-hmm. in the last uh, couple of years or so here. But um, it was it was literally just her posting to the Instagram account, right? Using liberal use of hashtags and so forth properly, you know, strategically, and it turned into a massive following. And I can see it's the same thing for you using social channels in just the right way. Right. And then I think in the beginning of my freelance journey, it was all about okay, make money to pay rent. And now it's like okay. I'm okay. We're good. We don't have to worry about paying rent anymore, but let's worry about hitting some other financial goals or changing the pricing model. So in the beginning, it used to be find as many clients as possible, as fast as possible. So I think I wrote it down. I have uh, 42 clients uh, during 2015. 2016, I had a little bit less. I had 32 clients because you know I was still overlapping. And then 2017, 22 clients. And that, that was probably the low point, like 22 clients 2018, 28 clients, 2019, 27 clients so far. So it's like the client number went really high and then went really low and then really high. And I don't think it's necessarily about the number of clients. It's more about the quality of the jobs and the type of work that I'm doing. So in the beginning, it was like, oh, you want me to do a $200 job? Sure. Um, So I had to have more projects because they were a lot smaller. And then I think as I've progressed, I've started learning, you know, doing $20, $200 jobs is really exhausting and I don't mm-hmm. want to do that. So started charging more and delivering greater value and charging higher prices for that. And then just trying to seek clients that want to partner with someone on larger projects rather than just piddly one-off things and being really picky about who I say yes and no to. Like I get approached all the time because my work is very cartoony, people say, will you illustrate my kid's book? And the answer is always no, because I don't do kid's books. It's it's just, I have to know my lane and kid's books are not my lane right now. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, I was going to, I was going to point out that it's also probably really difficult to hire a husband <laughs> if you're doing $200 projects <laughs> yes. to the tune of 22 clients. Um, okay. So that's the client run. Talk to me a little bit about how the business became more of a digital business. It's one thing to have clients and you do projects for them. It's another thing to become sort of the resident expert in sketchnoting, <laughs> um, in visual note taking, and to be able to publish a book on it, uh, yeah. to, and it's a it's a it's a good looking book as well. So between the book and the courses, how did those start to come onto the scene? Yeah, so I'd been uh, sketchnoting since 2015, and 
again, like I posted every single one that I did online. So I gained a following and started being known as the sketchnote girl. People would start hiring me for little projects and then that would grow into other things. And then someone asked me to come teach a workshop in Chattanooga. And I was like, I mean, I haven't taught one, but I'm sure I can. And that was my first ever speaking engagement. And it was three hours and I crushed it and it was great. And so I was like, okay, if I can put together a three hour workshop, I think I'll be okay. So I did workshops. I think I did seven workshops the next year or no, seven that year because it was January. I did seven workshops that year. And then I was like, okay, this is like actually a thing. People want this. And I kept getting messages with every workshop announcement. Oh, I wish you would come to my city. I wish you would go here. And oh, I live in Germany. I can't come. I wish I could. And it just kind of made me frustrated that I was doing all this work to help people. And I couldn't help most of the people that actually wanted to come. It was just mostly like one really excited person bringing four of their friends, which is great. But you all, you kind of want to help the people like the raving fans more than just the meh, it's kind of cool. Yeah, sure. right. So that's kind of when I shifted doing workshops in person to writing online content. And so I'd stopped doing workshops to pause and turn that content into an online course. And that's when the publisher approached me. They found me on Instagram. A publisher said, hey, we see you're a sketchnote expert. We want you to write a book on it. Are you interested? And it was like, I mean, I wasn't planning on it, but sure, I've already written half the book because I have this course that I've been writing for the past six months. And so I kind of put the course thing on hold and translated the course that I'd been writing into the book. And the book is basically my three-hour course with a lot more exercises. Right. So if you're ever if you're ever interested in sketchnoting, like read the book because that's the same thing as the course. And then which this is legit, by the way, Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble. I mean, like it's everywhere. This isn't just some sort of uh, scrap it together self-published thing that you threw together <laughs> and are selling through your website. This is this is bona fide. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and once the book launched, I kind of ramped back up the course thing and I started writing content and asking people what they wanted to learn first. I determined that people don't actually want an online course start to finish learn how to sketch note. Most people have already started to some degree and some people just want to re- learn one aspect of it like handwriting or listening or drawing and so all of my courses are considered deep dive subjects on sketchnoting, but there is not one comprehensive sketchnoting course. So now my focus at that the book is done is to be launching more courses. And the beauty of online courses is that I can reach those people who are messaging me in Germany saying, I wish I could take your class. <laughs> right. Who who love everything that you do. They just can't be in close proximity. Right. <laughs> basically, right? <laughs> What's what I always find interesting about these types of talents where they turn into where they're they're very hands-on. Uh, talents that turn into businesses is you are faced with the prospects of scaling that business because you can't just sit there and draw all the time for people. Well, I guess you could, but if you wanted to do more and think bigger, you're not going to be able to just do wonderful il- illustrations for people. Right. It's a rare thing anyway, let's put it that way. So um, I'm fascinated when people are able to turn that bi- into a, a digital business, but it does mean that you have to become pretty savvy, pretty knowledgeable, and not not just about the talent that you have, but the best way to package mm-hmm. that talent. So again, the person in Germany, the person in, you know, in New Zealand can become a customer and and not just a customer because they buy it, but a customer in that it helps them and they're they're maybe more even uh likely to buy the next course that right. you put out that takes them in a new direction. How have you had to evolve what you spend time learning and becoming good at that has to do with your business and not just the scale, the skill or the talent itself. Yeah. I feel like 
not like I've peaked in the sketchnoting world, but I feel like I've kind of reached near the top. If that sounds too egotistical, sorry. That's that's the only way I know how to say it is like there's only so much you can do. There's only so much you you can do. And I feel like I'm always trying to try new things, but at the end of the day, like I just I found my style. I like it. I'm gonna probably keep going with it and I'll keep experimenting, but it's like, all right, I feel like this is how I do sketch notes. And now that I'm peaked, I guess, for lack of a better better word, is I wanna share that with other people. So what that looks like courses. And now that I don't have to focus so much on the craft itself, I can focus on the business side. So like we went to craft and commerce and I've learned email marketing and I've started a mastermind group and I just surround myself with people that are doing the same kinds of things that I am because, you know, when you're a solopreneur, you have to figure it all out yourself. And I learned very quickly that I just didn't know enough. So I needed to learn about SEO and blogging and content marketing and email. And it's like, oh, this is a lot to learn. And I need to kind of drum up my own self. And that's actually led to outsourcing a lot of things and then also hiring, having my husband join the business too. Well, you did have to hire him. I mean, you, the two of you <laughs> did have to weigh the decision. You had to evaluate whether he had the skills to join, you know, what are he's going to offer the, the company, the organization. Yeah. Um, I should probably back up, by the way, too. Long ago, at the, at the early in this conversation, I said emilymills.com. It's actually Emily A. Mills. Dot com. It's important to <laughs> highlight that because I don't know what's at emilymills.com and I would hate to send somebody to the wrong place and we find out it's uh, who knows what it is over there. But um, <laughs> is, is Emily Mills then sort of become almost like the hub? Yeah. So that's actually been a point of confusion for me for a while is, okay, I have sketchnoteacademy.com. That's kind of its own thing, but most people find me first. So how do I send them to Sketchnote Academy? And oh, and I do public speaking and I go to schools and I talk to students and what do like there are very different audiences that come to my website. How do I serve them? Because one person wants to view my speaking testimonials and another person wants to look at my portfolio. How am I supposed to talk to both of those people? So for lack of a better word, emilyamills.com is a hub where people can kind of figure out where they need to go. Um, and it will be changing in the future now that Joseph is part of the business is we're going to create a separate entity that is not emilyamills.com because he's not helping emilyamills.com. We are creating something together. And so we'll come up with a new business name and we'll create a new website for that. And Emily Mills will probably still be a hub, but in the future, I'd like to continue growing and teaching and been freelancing only for four years, but I still know more than someone who's never freelanced before. And I'm actually really passionate about teaching people about freelance business and just tips and tricks and things that I've learned along the way, because as many freelancers know, it's very up and down and you learn as you go. So in the future, I plan on blogging about freelancing and just helping young freelancers figure out some of the hard things. Um, But that's way down the line because I've got to get farther along on things that are closer, like Sketchnote Academy, I need to get more courses out. So for now, Emily A. Mills is a hub. And in the future, you can probably find whatever else I'm doing on that side too. So it sounds like you are at a point in your own founder development where you've realized that what you have done and assembled to get you to where you are today will have to evolve for over the next couple of years. Right. Like You can't just continue to do what you're doing right now. You're going to need uh, more courses, but it sounds like there's also an aim to think beyond the discipline itself, the talent, the specific skill itself. You're thinking of other ways to help people learn some of the other lessons that you've right. learned along the way about 
what life is like as a freelancer that's now moved on to a full-time freelancer or a full-time developer, right? right? And I don't, when I think about being 75 years old, retired and sitting around like reflecting back on my life, I don't want to reflect back and say the only thing I did was be the sketchnote girl. Like (laughs) I just, it's okay (laughs) to be known for something, but I don't want to be known for only one thing because I, I feel like everyone has so much more to offer than just the, the one thing that they're known for. Like if you ever pick one famous person, they probably have this other side passion that no one knows about. And those are the things that I want to share with the world too. Yep. So exciting times. Yeah. Exciting times. You're you're almost at a little bit of a, not the same kind of crossroads you faced before, but you are at a similar crossroads. Uh, this time it sounds like it's, uh, it's Emily <laughs> originated versus other originated, right? Yes. Spiritually originated, <laughs> huh? <laughs> Um, well, I wish you the best of luck. I, before I let you go though, Emily, um, we introduced a new segment to the show here recently that we call three in one and it's three questions that get to know you and put you on the spot, not in an awkward (laughs) way, but put you on the spot in ways that I hadn't prepared you as far as the questions and the areas that we would cover, um, and give others a chance to reflect on their own situation as well. So it's three questions. Your, your quickest answer would be fine on these, although it's not a rapid fire <laughs> sort of lightning round type of thing like that. But I'll, I'll, we'll close with, the, with our, our final three questions, all right? I'm ready. So question number one is, can you give me one principle or value that you believe that you think most people do not? Uh, say no to the wrong thing. Do I need to expound on that? I like that. <laughs> uh, I actually want that to just okay, hang we'll there because I think that might have all kinds of meanings for other people. That's cool. All right. And one behavior or habit that you try to stick to no matter what. Sleep. I get a lot of really good sleep. Is that a certain number of hours per night? No, you... but I, it's usually over eight. <laughs> well, good for you. Good for you. All right. And then your last one. One person you most admire that you either take your cues from in life or, and I mean this in a good way, most would most like to emulate? Hmm. I think it's probably been my college idol, my college design idol, whose name is Von Glitschka, and he's an illustrator. His patterns come come stock on Adobe software. Um, He's prolific in design and illustration and he is no nonsense and he tells it like it is, but he's also a really good teacher and he's very kind. And I just want to emulate that. First of all, the name alone is legendary. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great talking with you and getting to know your story really well. Thanks so much for having me on Brandon. That was the story of Emily Mills, author of the art of visual note-taking and founder of the Sketchnote Academy. Check out our show notes for links to her work. She's incredibly talented. Now, stay tuned for next week as we bring you the story of Brad Hussey, a Canadian with unbelievable web development talents who followed a similar path, pivoting from a day job, earning unsatisfactory pay, following the authoritative voice of someone near and dear to him, his wife, Laura. You'll find out how he has mastered Udemy, teaching over 400,000 students over the last six or seven years. All right. If you enjoyed this episode, give us your rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy your podcast and tell a friend or two or three, won't you please recommend us, mention us, pass us along and or reach out to me 
on Twitter at Brandon Hall. All right, a thank you to my co-producer, Preston Lee, founder of Milo and admin of the Milo Mastermind community on Facebook, as well as my tremendous assistant, Bilal Agrar, for helping put this episode together, as well as to the fellow members of the Podglomerate Network that help us get the word out. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next week on Freelance to Founder. The Podglomerate. A sonic unit.